Have you noticed that the Bible doesn't give a lot of directions on how to do a lot of things, things that are very important or the Bible wouldn't have mentioned them, yet details are often lacking in just how best to do them? We would much prefer step-by-step instructions on church government and the order of worship services or the perfect marriage ceremony or exactly how to discipline our children or invest our money or deal with a totally crazy neighbor. The list goes on. Yeah, I love your neighbor, but sometimes a bit more information might help you not just decide to move away from the neighbor instead. We could list other issues that come to your mind, I'm sure. You might think it would make things a lot simpler if God had just spelled it out. Do it this way. And don't vary from this exact formula like he did with the instructions to build the tabernacle. But the life of the New Testament believer and the body of Christ together in relationship demands freedom. Listening to God, learning as we go, as we patiently and lovingly practice how to relate to each other. This is by design because God is not building an inanimate structure like the tabernacle, but the real thing. The tabernacle was a shadow of something more wonderful. And he's forming a family, and that demands freedom, and that implies messiness because people, if you haven't noticed it, are messy. We just came through another Christmas season Almost no one in my circle of acquaintance has anything like the ideal holiday postcard image of a happy together family singing carols around a beautifully decorated room. Because of the brokenness of our past few decades, most folks I know are torn between various locations, trying to please all the different in-laws and secondary in-laws, additional new step-grandparents, taking children to meet the estranged part of the used-to-be family in order to avoid some increased conflict. Or there are those intact families which are disrupted emotionally, not from without, but from within. Not by the divided scattering of ex-family members who must be appeased, but by various unresolved interpersonal conflicts that they have stacked up and up all year long and are now finding that it's all unmanageable because of the demands and frustrations and disappointments and false promises of the coming happy holidays. Before the stress of the stacked up credit card bills overwhelm them, they're often already overwhelmed by just their own inner desire to try to squeeze emotional blood out of the holiday turnip in hopes of some small slice of real family joy and togetherness which always seems to elude them and everyone else. They have attempted to use one day or one limited portion of the year to provide in one artificial charade what could never be fabricated by outside trappings. If its essence is not already present in every day, Without the tinsel and the trappings, then no amount of outer decorating or gift buying will achieve it. And the longing for that missing sense of transcendence, the joy of living, the meaning of it all, 
the longing for that is so great and the disappointment when it fails is so great, so deep. The corporate anxiety so mutually infecting that most adults are really relieved when the happy holidays are over. Well, here's a truly happy thought, if you can believe that I can find a happy thought after that dismal description I just made. Uh, One that I know is probably over the top and a bit unfair because there are happy families out there that do enjoy real holiday time. But what if God himself is resisting our plastic, counterfeit, electronically mind-numbing, materialist, heart-numbing, relationship-destroying, frantic way of living so that we will finally begin to fall under the weight of it all and then climb back onto our feet Look around the room and see if there's any other human being that has the same awareness. And start relating to each other in terms that the Father intended and that the Holy Spirit will bless. What if we have to be maybe willfully aware to invent new ways to make family happen? And what if the people you begin to do that with are not even necessarily your blood family at least at first, but are just those you find who are lonely enough and willing enough to be interested in engaging the experiment. I told you this would be sloppy. I told you I would not have some neat, organized, fail-safe, five-step plan towards doing life together. I'm not even trying to provide that because I don't think such a list would produce the results that we long for or that God wants. I think it will be a bloody, messy, difficult, and painful, like most births are, process. But once the initial time of gestation and the pressure of the birthing process is complete, it will produce life. There are folks among this audience who gather weekly with others and listen to the message and are sharing life together and building relationships around that weekly meeting. I know that may seem strange that instead of coming to a church meeting and hearing a live pastor preaching, there are folks out there that listen to a recorded message, hearing a, uh, you know just my voice on, on, a, on a recorded CD, but I think it's because of the subject matter that I'm addressing which then feeds into a larger need in people. Just listening to the messages only doesn't doesn't really produce much. But what it does is it awakens a longing for something no electronic device could provide. And actually, to be honest, no live sermon can provide. They want to be together and be glad to want to be together. In being together, they build bonds of affection that make them want to be together and that results in the joy of being glad that they are together. And in that atmosphere, the body is being built up together as a spiritual house where the Holy Spirit causes the joints and bands that connect us to flow with every joint beginning to supply what is lacking until the whole body is being built up together in love. It starts with a leader, in some cases, 
in some cases they were already pastors, but in other cases they were not pastors. They were just older, wiser men and women who began to gather people in Jesus' name out of love and care for one another. I'm not certain, but I'm sure there was a pot of coffee and munchies somewhere in the picture. And to be honest, I wouldn't want to come listen to me talk on a recording if they're not going to feed me. Then after the listening, that produces interaction with each other, and then that leads to slow but increasing opening up of people to one another. And I know that sends cold chills down some spines because we have all sat through some person telling an entire group all about their second cousin in Chattanooga who had a friend who has a neighbor who has a nephew that needs prayer. And that's where the elder leadership, and by that I I mean whoever is hosting, not some elected official, but a wiser older brother and sister, gently has to step in and guide things back to a meaningful, limited focus But it is this very kind of difficult awkwardness that also makes us grow in love and patience and godliness with one another. And out of this kind of living together regularly and sharing life together, there begins to form a family in Christ. And even some friendships and other supportive relationships rise above the main group as the heart of the people connect and grow. Remember that I said in the previous session that friendship, I mean real friendship, not the shallow form we have tended to give the name friendship, but real bonding heart relationships are only a part of the formation of the relationships that the New Testament calls us to. That long list of scripture we cited could be melted down to a a few directives And the most prominent one is love one another. Then that is specified out as what we should do for each other and what we must not do to each other. And for that to be fully orbed, it has to go beyond close friendship. Now, I don't want to talk about friendship. That's a whole separate subject. Friendships are going to emerge in the context of this larger group. But the focus is really not intimate friendships that siphon off from the rest of the group. The close, warm, personal friendships should be floating in a larger sea of all sorts of other relationships. That, And that means a healthy mix of generations, races, cultural preferences, musical tastes, economic classes. The greater the mix, the healthier the potential love life of the people will be. Last night, Mary and I had all our children and spouses and grandchildren with us. I sat and watched as our teenagers moved around the room from the eldest, which was me and Mary, to the youngest, holding our newest infant grandson. I watched the emotional energy and the interchange going on between not only different ages and tastes, but different races. See, our family is blessed with an interracial stream in it that is a foreshadow of the fullness of the coming kingdom of God. And it's an antidote to the current evil spirit of racism that the leftists in this country seek daily to keep infected with hatred. So I watched as the Holy Spirit showed me a hundred different tiny momentary interactions that were going on between male, female, 
old, young, white, black. There were bits of life being shared and digested in these moments that could never happen between two close friends. See, so friendship's important, but you need something larger than friendship. What the friends share is precious and needed, but good as that is, it's not enough. I saw gray heads interacting with mop heads, energy connecting with elderly peace, older wisdom encountered by youthful zeal, those from an impoverished world being invited into a rich world with love and vision. There were teenagers learning to dial down their exuberance so as to be able to properly handle an infant who was growing his right orbital prefrontal cortex in the arms of big sisters and grandparents and white grandparents and black uncles. And there were old teachers learning to be quiet and hear the point of view of much younger minds and hearts and learning from them instead of doing all the instructing. All of this was in order for (laughs) a kind of happy chaos to flourish between chicken and mashed potatoes and and pasta and brownies and caramel pie. Our initial prayer over the meal was like the firing of the pistol that sets the race into full action. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love and presence with us and for this food and for each other. May your name be honored at this table. And then we were off eating and laughing and sharing and passing around babies back and forth and cutting up meat for little ones and catching smiles from across the table that was too far away and all the noise to speak in words. So we spoke instead in twinkles in the eye that were more eloquent in their message than words could ever be. It was noisy and crazy and life-sharing and empowering. It was quiet and peaceful and gentle and comforting. There were no walls to overcome between race or sex or age or ethnic difference or economic status. And all these were present in some form. Each of those potential barriers I just listed, they were all there only in potential as barriers. But they had no platform as barriers because love was the dominant force over everything and covered a multitude of sins. I sat back in my chair observing and maybe I was more aware of all this since I'm in the middle of recording this series of messages, but for a brief shining moment, I saw at my own family table all the aspects of the kingdom of God I so want to communicate and propagate, not only to my world, but to the world. Jesus was with us. His presence was over us and in us and moving among us, but There was no religious focus as if to imply that we can only acknowledge Jesus if we stop doing life together and make a place for some non-living religious piety. Then after that somber interruption in real life, we can then jump back into the fun. No, thank God, there was no religious interlude. The fun and the honoring of his presence was all of one piece. It was all the same cloth. Someone has said that if Christians want to make an impact into the lives of people, we have to learn to give better parties. 
I've been often critical of what I have referred to as the latte church crowd, or I even mentioned in this series my tendency to not appreciate smoke machines on worship team bandstands or the electronic light shows which we use to replace the Shekinah glory of God which is very rarely present. So when I say that I agree with the need that we need to give better parties, I'm not affirming that sort of pandering in the name of the gospel. But the kind of better parties we need are the kind I just tried very poorly and inadequately to describe. My children and the grown children of many of my friends have told me that it was never the sermons or the family devotionals that they most remember with warmth. There may have been a moment here or there that might have been meaningful and stuck with a teenage heart, but what was always engaging and memorable and helped them move toward the goodness of God were the family moments of spontaneous love and joy and peace that just naturally, supernaturally, occurred in the daily ebb and flow of life. I don't want any well-meaning parents, which we all are, to get discouraged at what I'm saying here. But when we always feel like we have to create some spiritual mud puddles in the otherwise spiritual desert of life, we may be doing the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish. We, we may be making our children feel that life goes along in its own normal, enjoyable stream, <clears throat> and now and then we have to stop and take a moment, stop the flow of joy and living, and give a few boring minutes to acknowledge God. By doing that, we not only may be misrepresenting God, but we are inadvertently making an unscriptural division between normal life and spiritual life, when that should be all one piece. God loves parties, so much so that he set them into the fabric of Israel's yearly calendar and made provisions for a good portion of the tithes to be set aside for eating and drinking and being together. He wanted to satiate the bodies and souls of his people so their right orbital prefrontal cortex would be strengthened and their nucleus accumbens would be put in its proper place so all eyes would be twinkling for the loved ones who they are glad to be together with. This is just the earnest of this very same atmosphere that is repeated at the Incarnation, at the marriage of Cana, at the Lord's table, and will finally be fully manifested at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. To be excluded from this circle of love is hell. A few years ago, the state of Montana was suffering a terrible epidemic of methamphetamine addiction in labs and all that goes with that. The horror stories were increasing in number someone came up with the wise idea to produce a series of one-minute commercials for television addressing this problem. Now, they had the good sense not to simply have some talking head appear on a screen explaining the physical and legal dangers of drug use. No, instead, they showed a vivid, emotionally capturing picture. They told a one-minute story the scenes, one in particular that 
really powerfully captured my memory, begins with a young man erratically approaching the front door of his parents' house at Christmas time. The camera then pans back as the son begins knocking and then beating on the front door. As the camera pans the entire house, the front picture window reveals the couple holding each other by the Christmas tree, trying to endure the pain of loss caused by their drug-induced behavior in their son, whom they are refusing to allow into the house as he screams and finally throws himself against the door, shouting that he's going to kill them. After only a few weeks of this and other powerful ads, meth activity in the state of Montana dropped 85%. Now, the power of the imagery in all those ads was striking and effective, but after reviewing most of them, the one that stuck with me the most was the one I just described to you. The horror of being on the outside, unable to get in, screams to me of not only the negative effects of sin, but the positive potential of being brought back inside. When you see the ad, it makes it clear that the loving parents cannot let their son back in because of his insane condition. And the message hit home with the Montana watching public that had been using meth. But I can't help but think that part of the power of the effect of that particular ad was not only the horror of the effects of the drugs, but the desperate longing which is in all of us to be welcomed back inside. And though I don't want to make more of it than is reasonable, other scenarios prove again and again that the cliché, hugs, not drugs, has a lot of merit. The same is true in healing of depression, for instance. Though the information is suppressed by corporations that stand to make millions of dollars in sales of antidepressants, study after study is showing repeatedly that except in extreme cases, placebos are just as effective as drugs, which is not saying much in that neither are very effective, but the placebos don't have the negative side effects, at least, that the drugs have. What proves most helpful in ministering to depression is to be listened to by another caring person. Well, go figure. Dr. Paul Tournier, in his book, The Meaning of Persons, wrote 50 years ago, the language of the human heart, when it casts off intellectualism in which it has been trained at school, recovers its pristine freshness when the human heart is listened to. It is the language of our dreams. The thing that strikes me when I am talking with my patients is that the moment deep personal contact is made, the very style of our talk changes. Images spring spontaneously to mind. We begin to talk in parables, and we understand one another better than when the tone of the conversation was intellectual and didactic. The conversation becomes anecdotal, like the Bible is anecdotal. But the anecdote is no longer merely a story. It becomes an experience, a personal truth that we are living in. The Roman poet Seneca wrote 2,000 years ago, 
the one who listens to us, is all the world. Whether he be friend or teacher, brother or father, mother, sister, neighbor, son, ruler or servant, does he listen? To whom can any of us say, here I am, see me in my nakedness, my wounds, my secret grief, my despair, my betrayal, my pain, my tongue which cannot express my sorrow, my terror, my abandonment. Do you see me? Listen to me for just a day or an hour or even a moment lest I expire in my terrible wilderness, my lonely silence. Oh God, is there no one who will listen? Taylor Caldwell wrote these words in the preface to one of her novels. Man's real need, his most terrible need, is for someone to listen to him, not as a patient, but as a human soul. He needs to tell someone of what he's thinking, of the bewilderment he encounters when he tries to discover why he was born, how he must live, and what his destiny is. Our pastors would listen to us, but we don't give them time to listen to us. We have burned them out and buried them with tasks which we should be doing on our own, meaning caring for one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote from his book, Life Together, the first service that one owes to others is the fellowship of listening to them. Just as love of God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for your brothers and sisters is learning to listen to them. It is God's love for us that he not only gives us his word, but also lends us his ear. So it is his work that we do for our brother when we learn to listen to him. Christians, especially ministers, so often think they must always contribute something when they are in the company of others. And this is the one service that they have to offer, to talk. They forget that listening can be a much greater service than speaking. And we could and should spend a lot more time on developing the art and service of listening. But that's a study in itself. And there are a few other aspects of doing life together that we need to at least introduce into our thinking while we have this time together on the subject. Once we begin to really listen, we may find that we are the instrument of God for only that particular conversation with a needy person. And then we move on. But we may find that there is a need that goes farther than single listening to a single conversation and a deeper relationship begins to be formed. We've already mentioned that friendships will develop within the larger context of a caring fellowship and no one can be everybody's friend on that level. It's impossible to do safely or really at all. But if the entire group is learning to be centered in Christ and learning to develop family bonds which hold them all together because the protective boundary in which they not only maintain some friendships but also all the different levels of relationship 
then sometimes parental relationships may form where there is that need. Now, I previously mentioned the scary idea of, quote, reparenting, a term that was birthed in the early days of the therapeutic movement of the 1980s, which came to prominence after the debacle of the family of the 1960s and 70s. Millions felt abandoned, orphaned, and alone. And out of the need to help hurting people, many different ideas were put forward to help restore broken people. And the term reparenting came out of that milieu. But when not rooted and grounded in Christ and his community, this concept of reparenting easily went off the rails to points that caused thinking Christians to reject the term and the practice. But whenever we throw the baby out with the bathwater, we have to go retrieve the baby. Yes, reject the wrong use of reparenting by all means, but not the biblical pattern that does support the concept. Though we may not need to engage as adults with other adults and become fully present parents to them, surely we can all relate to areas of our own lives where, for whatever reason, our own development in certain parts of our souls has been left stunted or wounded. And we need support and input from others who are older and wiser to help us come into full adulthood. At least we will admit that the need for mentoring, since none of us knows everything, uh, is a valid need. But when the need is deeper than a lack of information or training that mentoring supplies, when it's a wound from long-lost relationships that has crippled us in adulthood, has God made any provision for this to be healed? Well, of course he has. But we have erroneously tried to make that need a subject of instant miraculous restoration by some direct fiat of God. But scripture and human experience does not support that that's the way God intended that to be done. It would be easier on us if God did do it that way. Then there would be no need for us to be available to hurting people in a self-sacrificial way. But God sets the lonely into families. And there he breaks their chains. And how does he break their chains of addiction or insecurity? of sexual brokenness or emotional childishness by the re-establishing on some needed level of human bonding. Rooted in Christ, we are established in our horizontal relationship with God or our vertical relationship with God. This is all important, obviously, but it is not all there is of God's redemptive plan for us. There is still the horizontal the human part, rooted in Christ, the vertical, but grounded in human relationships, the horizontal. And then we're able to grow up in love. Now, when we tell a person to go to God and seek him and listen to his voice, that's always the right thing to tell anybody. If we're motivated in our telling by a desire to help them truly become more fully rooted in Christ. But it is dead wrong to tell people to do that if it's just a way of getting rid of them and ridding ourselves of the sense of responsibility that their weakness makes 
It's opposite of what we're told to do in Scripture. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians chapter 6. God has thrown them back onto us, it may be, when we try to throw them onto God. But if we are in a developing, growing body of believers in right relationship with Christ and with each other, it is both safe and necessary to engage some people on a deep level of bonding than a mere face-to-face, week-to-week conversation. It's safe because none of us is totally responsible for the welfare of any one person. We are all engaged, but some of us may be far more engaged. Like a family reunion where nobody's going to take the place of mama, but there's aunts and cousins and big sisters that are just as capable of stepping in and caring for the child, though the mother obviously has the much deeper relationship and ultimate responsibility for the child. I know that parallel is not exact because no reparenting is a total restoration of the parental role as a, as a true parent has for a child. But surely I don't have to explain the necessity of certain parts of wounded people being met by certain mature parts in solid people. Just a few of many scriptural examples, all different levels of depth of these examples, depending on the need of the person. Paul and Timothy, Paul and Titus, Peter and John Mark. Again, if you want to go into this more deeply, order the CD series from our uh, CD catalog called From Servants to Sons. Then there's the entire spirit of the New Testament, which we've already listed. To love one another means what? Only loving where we can do so in a shallow, cosmetic way? Or loving on whatever level love has been deprived? Obviously, loving people means loving them where they need it. We don't know much about Paul's family life. It can be assumed that when he came to Christ, he lost a great deal of the human family level uh, of his life. He speaks of himself as having counted all as loss, as rubbish, in comparison to knowing Christ. But we err if we think that that means Paul didn't need people. He describes nearly falling into despair when he came to Troas, expecting to find Titus and to hear about how the Corinthians had responded to his tearful letter, which he called it. Why was it tearful? Because his heart was broken over the relationship damage going on between him and the Corinthians. When Titus was not there, Paul became so anxious and troubled in his spirit that he left Troas and went to Macedonia, where his anxiety only grew when he couldn't find Titus there either. 2 Corinthians 7 celebrates when Titus showed up and how relieved Paul was. The entire tone of Paul's ministry revealed in his writing is filled with relationship after relationship after relationship. One of the most poignant and overlooked phrases in the New Testament is Romans chapter 16, verse 13. Greet Rufus and his mother, who was a mother to me. Some might rightly say, well, you don't want to put more emphasis on that verse than it deserves. 
And I agree. But for heaven's sakes, let's don't put less on it either. I dare say many of us, if we have been systematic Bible readers and have read through the book of Romans more than once, may not have ever even noticed that that verse or paid any attention to it until right now. Also, if you'll notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 again, I'm assuming that you are going to read it if you haven't, don't have it in front of you now. Paul is not only excited about Titus showing up, and he's not only excited about the Corinthians' attitude toward him being more loving and restorative, but notice how he celebrates everybody's relationship with each other. He, he's, he's celebrating the whole group's love for one another in Christ. Again, this is what I mean when I talk about supportive, more private friendships are wonderful, but they're not big enough to contain all the dynamics that are involved in this particular study. It's bigger than friendship and must include different levels and degrees of bonding. Not that anyone is ever more or less valued than any other person, but that each is able to engage on whatever degree and level of closeness his or her life needs may require, while also loving the whole group. In a healthy family, there's no jealousy. It hurts when two people you love don't love each other. But it's a huge blessing when many people you love also love each other. Well, look again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, and then verse 11. Paul says to the Thessalonians, We behaved gently among you like a devoted mother nursing and cherishing her own children. We were being so tenderly and affectionately desirous towards you, continued to share with you not only God's good news, but our own lives also. See how Paul doesn't make a separation between spiritually caring for them and doing life together? He goes on to say, For you have become so very dear to us. For you know how as a father dealing with his children, we used to exhort each of you personally, encouraging you to live lives worthy of God. Notice Paul is not saying I did that. He said we did that. In 2 Timothy 1.4, this verse always moves me deeply. I always wonder, what's, what's the story behind this? We can imagine a lot of scenarios that would fit this, but Paul says to Timothy, I pray for you constantly, and I remember your tears, and long to see you so I can be filled with joy. Long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Remember a few sessions ago we talked about the kind of sorrow that makes room for joy? Well, here's another one. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. My tears, your tears, Timothy, were are precious to me in the memory of them and what they represent, and I long to see you that I may be filled again with joy by the sight of you. Older women are instructed to teach and mentor the younger in Paul's writings. John, the Apostle John, addresses his first letter to fathers and to sons and to young men and to children. If these men are fathers and the younger are sons, whose fathers and whose sons are they? 
Obviously, John is not simply using religious jargon, thankfully. Uh, I'm sure he's addressing some fathers and sons who may be biological, but it's doubtful that's what he's referring to all the way around. The point in all these examples is that God supplied supportive family bonds for those who needed them, and they were lived out in real day-by-day family dynamics, not merely in some weekly church service setting or even a midweek home Bible study, but in doing life together. Now, even in the most dedicated of us, this theme disturbs something in our materialistic sense of protecting our own space and our own privacy. We are, sadly, creatures of our American and European materialist culture, and greatly that greatly enhances our individualism. And individualism is not scriptural. That we are individuals, yes, but individualism, no. We come out of our private world in our culture when we want to relate, but we go right back in and retreat as deep into our cave as we want to. We make brief contacts at various levels of demands on us, sometimes casual, sometimes more intense, but few of those encounters interfere with our own space, either emotionally or physically. Now, I'm not trying to impose on you or anybody any demands at all. Mary and I have known what it's like to have people live with us uh, at various times and various degrees who have various needs and issues. And we do not have that going on in the stage of life that we're in right now, but we are certainly willing to obey the Lord on that subject. God will have his way with his people. Jesus' prayer of John 17 will come to pass. Paul's description in Ephesians of the final, ultimate intention for the church will come to pass. And whatever shaking of the cultural norms, whether economic or social or you name it, whatever shaking has to come in order to put us in a position of being willing to fulfill his calling to love one another on that level, he'll do it. He'll bring about the changes in the culture that bring about the changes in us that will then pave the way for obedience to him in these issues. So let's close this study with an examination of our own hearts before him. No one should be lacking who is part of the body of Christ. No one should be alone. No one should be afraid for their security in old age. No one should be emotionally orphaned. No one should even wonder if they're going to eat today or not. No fatherless boy or girl should ever look with unfulfilled longing as other children play with other caring grown-ups. No widow should feel desolate. No sick person should ever go lacking for care. No divorced mother with young children should ever wonder how she's going to get through the week. And saying, well, we would, we would have done something if we'd only known, just indicts us all the more because we boast so much about our electronic communications at the touch of a finger. See, it's not a lack of communication, but a lack of communion. It's not a lack of mind, but a lack of heart. 
is not a need for more organization, but a need for deeper relationship that will begin to see to it that no one is left out and every joint is supplying as the body builds up itself in love until we all come into the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God unto the full stature so that the world will know that Christ is the Lord for they will see how we love one another.